0: The book of Jonah. Jonah was an ancient prophet, and this week as I was thinking about prophets, I was listening to a podcast called It Was Said by John Meacham. and he's the national historian for the cathedral in Washington. And it was on Martin Luther King Jr., and specifically some of the speeches he spoke. And by many people's accounting, King was a modern-day prophet, a man who was compelled to speak to the conscience of the nation. And in his most famous speech, Spoken on a hot, sweltering day in August. We know about those. But this was in Washington, D.C., in front of the Lincoln Memorial. He spoke to some 250,000 people in a speech called, I Have a Dream. And he said, among other things, these words. Now is the time to make real the promise of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality to all God's children. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? Let me just pause there for a moment. King, a Baptist minister, no doubt is riffing on something Jesus said when he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Those words thundered across that place as the conscience of our nation was struck and a day of reckoning came forward. It's interesting that last phrase I read, he's quoting from an ancient prophet by the name of Amos who spoke those mighty words beforehand. Martin Luther King Jr. was a man of the moment, no doubt. With courage and conviction, he stood up and spoke to our nation. Jonah was a prophet as well. I don't know if he had the Oratory gifts that Martin Luther King Jr. had, but he was a man who was sent to his nation to speak and to call it back as it was going off the tracks and coming unraveled its themes. He was, he was trying to awaken them to, to come back and turn back to the Lord. And he reigned during the time of King Jeroboam II. And if I were to ask you the question, what do you know about Jonah? What would you say? I asked someone that question this week, and the answer was, he's that guy who got swallowed by a fish, wasn't he? Oh, that is in this story, and no doubt we have all kinds of questions about that, but what else do you know about the book of Jonah? For many of us, that's, that's about the extent of it. We're going to go deep into it, and this story, even though there's a suggestion in there about him being swallowed by this great fish, is really not about a great fish, but rather it's about God's heart for the nations and his grace. As Richard Phillips said in his commentary in the book of Jonah, The book of Jonah challenges us to consider not only what it means to believe the gospel of God's grace, but also what it means to live the gospel of grace. See, we're going to see this book challenging our own assumptions and our own prejudices and our own thoughts about who is worthy of God's grace and who isn't. We're going to see God's heart for the nations, not just for people like us, but for all the nations. And so we're going to call our study today The Perfect Storm of God's Grace. We're going to just go over those verses that Jack read for us a few moments ago and seek to unpack them and to understand them. And so chapter 1, verse 1 begins like this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. What's well, interesting if you and I were to read this in the original Hebrew, we would see that the very first word is the word and. My translation translates it as now, but it's the word and, which signals to us that this is part of a, a larger story, and indeed it is. We put it into the story of the scriptures in the four-chapter gospel that we talk about here of God's original design of partnering with humans to rule this world and of humans rebelling against that and yet God determining to rescue us from ourselves and sending his son the Lord Jesus Christ to to pay for our sins and to ultimately usher in what's called the kingdom of God the the new heavens and new earth and in the story of redemption there's this part where God prepares this man named Abraham and promises that through him and his offspring he will bless the nations And Israel was called to be a blessing to the nations. And it's in that context that we get this story of the book of Jonah. And we should pay attention to this Old Testament book of Jonah because Jesus himself talked about it. Indeed, he says that it talks about him. There's this interesting place in the Gospels right after Jesus was resurrected. He's walking with some disciples and teaching them the scriptures And he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he didn't say this, this is what Luke says, uh, rather, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus thought that the Torah spoke about him, those first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, and in the Hebrew categorization, that's a lot of the scriptures. Basically, everything else that's not the poetry. He says, all these things speak about him. So, it'd be interesting to be on that road with him and Hear what he said about Jonah and how Jonah points to himself. But we'll unpack some of that as we go along. We'll introduce the three characters in this opening statement. One is the Lord, one is Jonah, and one is Nineveh, the great city. First, the Lord. You see in the scriptures that those letters are capitalized. That's the way the interpreters are letting us know that this is the the covenant, the sovereign name that God revealed himself to Moses and his people. It's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and it's the word Yahweh, transliterated. It's first spoken to Moses when God called Moses to go somewhere into the heart of Egypt and to liberate his people from slavery. And we see Moses kind of hemming and hawing about that, and kind of the first excuse he he throws up is, who am I to tell him is actually sending me to do this? And God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, Has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So the first character we're introduced to is Yahweh. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who liberated Israel, the God who is in the business of redeeming this world. The second character is, of course, Jonah. As I mentioned, Jonah was a prophet, he served during the reign of Jeroboam II. Jeroboam was one of the most wicked kings in Israel. It was enough that the nations around Israel were terrible places to live, but instead of leading Israel in righteousness and justice and setting the example for people, he was inventing new ways of doing evil. And in fact, the scriptures tell us that this king did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so, Jeremiah, I'm sorry, uh, Jonah was was called to speak out to his own nation and to call them back. And just think about this: it, it's it's hard enough to try to call people back who who say they believe in God, who who know something of the Scriptures. But it's another thing to go somewhere else. We're going to get into that in just a moment. In fact, the place that God is sending him is a place called Nineveh, and here it's called the Great City. What's interesting is this city actually pops up earlier in the story of the Scriptures. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and the Table of Nations after the story of Noah, we find this city being built by a man named... uh, His name means rebel, but his name is Nimrod in Hebrew. This was the grandson of Noah. Yeah, the Noah from the flood, remember him? And so he built the kingdom of Babylon, which becomes the archetype of of an evil, oppressive nation. But he also went to the land of Assyria, or what would become Assyria, and he built the city of Nineveh. What we need to know about this city is that it was a military capital of this nation near what's called uh, modern-day Mosul, Iraq. The walls of this city, at its height and glory, were 138 feet thick. And it had some 15 gates, each one named after one of the gods of Assyria. And this city endured for a 1,000 years. Can you imagine? Until it was destroyed in 612 by Babylon. And this was a place that um, you would not want to go visit. (laughs) Even though this artist's rendition makes the city look very glorious, this was a really terrible place. Let me just tell you what three of their kings did. There's one named Asher Bonaparte. I think is how you say his name. Uh, he kind of had a thing for tearing off people's lips and arms. Another king by the name of tiglath Pilisar flayed victims alive and enjoyed making piles of skulls. Another king named Asher Nasser Apli also flayed victims and draped the skins of rulers over the walls of Nineveh. Not only was Nineveh a real-life nightmare filled with horrors, it has been described by one modern commentator as an ancient terrorist state. This is not a place that you want to check off on your bucket list to go visit if you lived in the ancient world. In fact, another prophet who was not sent to Nineveh, he just proclaimed... uh, God's message to the nation of Israel. He mentioned some of the other nations, and he said this about Nineveh. Woe to the city of blood, all full of lies and plunder, never without victims. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands over you, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? That was Nineveh. It wasn't that there's just a the bad part of the city that you wanted to avoid. The whole city was just terrible, filled with blood. Can you imagine if Bryan College Station was described as a place that was filled with blood and violence? This would not be a place you'd want to live. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So with what you know about Nineveh, and just that brief introduction, how would you respond if you were in the place of Jonah. I don't know about you, but I would be really, really reluctant to, to go. I'd, I'd want to have a, a long conversation with God about this and make sure that he knows what he's doing. After all, maybe God has fallen off his, his throne or it's gotten a little crazy. I mean, never was a prophet sent to another nation, especially one that, that flayed victims alive. Surely God can't be serious about that. As I was studying this week, I listened to, I read a couple commentaries on on this passage, and they, one person said this would be like asking a Jew in Israel at the time of the Nazi regime to go into Berlin and to call Nazi Germany to repentance. Or can you imagine a modern-day Jew being sent to Tehran to go stand in the streets and just tell them that you need to you need to repent of all the evil you're doing. You need to repent of worshiping the God that you're worshiping, and turn to the one true God. How long do you think that person will last? Jonah's probably thinking, there's no way, if I go to Nineveh, that I'm getting out alive. This is, this is just not right. <laughs> and yet, that's exactly what God told him to do. Notice the scripture here says, the reason that God is sending him is he wants him to cry out against this city, for their evil has come up before me. This is just a fancy way of saying that, that God has taken notice, this God who knows all things, this is on His mind. And let's just say that the only way we can make sense of this statement, that the evil has come up before him, is if we live in a moral universe that is designed to run on love. I mean we know from Jesus that the two great commands are, "Love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, and your neighbors yourself." He said that's, that's basically the essence of what we're called to do as humans. And so when we don't do that, the scriptures describe that as, as evil, as, as sin, as rebellion, as iniquity. There's a number of different words. And so the very fact that this evil has come up before God puts us on the tracks of understanding that we live in a moral universe that is accountable before God. And so we can take comfort in the fact that God notices the evil in this world and it will ultimately be banished from this world in what's called the kingdom of God. And so someone says, if God notices the evil of this world, then why doesn't he do something about it? How would you answer that question? Well, there's probably several ways we can attack it, but one way of attacking it is saying he has done something about it and he will do something about it. In the coming of Jesus Christ, he laid down his life as a sacrificial lamb and had the sins of people like you and me placed upon him so that God can condemn our evil in his flesh, so that we could be justified, that we could be set right before God, that we could receive forgiveness of sins and welcome into his kingdom. So God has, in one sense, dealt with evil definitively in the sacrifice of Christ. But we're also told in that story of Scripture, remember that graphic we had up here, the four-part story of the gospel, that one day when the kingdom comes, the new heavens and new earth, everything that is evil will be banished. There will no more kill or hurt or destroy in God's kingdom. For everything will be set right. The Apostle Peter, in his letter, said these words Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. So, since the t- coming of Christ, and just one sense say, say that, you know, the 2,000 years that have passed has just been a couple of days in God's mind. He will come and deal definitively with evil. He goes on and says here, the Apostle Peter, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So if God has dealt with our sin in the person of Jesus, why didn't he end everything then? Because God, through Jesus, sent his disciples into this world to proclaim the gospel of the forgiveness of sins. And we're told that God's heart is bent on forgiveness. This is, this is his desire. And so he calls people through the message of the gospel, to turn to him in faith and repentance. And back in the day of Jonah, he's sending Jonah to call this wicked city of Nineveh to faith and repentance in him. But God is patient, Peter says, which raises the question, how patient should God be? Miroslav Volf, who is a professor at Yale, saw his nation of Croatia torn apart by war, and he really struggled with his faith and understanding what happened there, seeing the utter evil that takes place in in war. And he writes this book called Exclusion and Embrace, and in it he says this. But how patient should God be? Yes, God is patient, but how patient should God be? The day of reckoning must come, not because God is too eager to pull the trigger, but because every day of patience in a world of violence means more violence, and every postponement of vindication means letting insult accompany injury. So in one sense you could say God is is running a risk of allowing evil to flourish temporarily while he calls people back to himself before the day of reckoning comes. And so, God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, For their evil has come up before me. In other words, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And I want you to confront it. I want you to highlight the ways they are living contrary to to their design as human beings. And I want you to call them to faith and repentance in me. See, this message of condemnation implies the message of hope that if they they awaken, if they repent, if if they turn to this God who is sending this messenger. Then a disaster could be averted. And so I want you to note the kindness of God's grace that He is showing to Nineveh, that He is willing to have even them, the worst of the worst, turn to Him in faith and repentance. See, God doesn't have to send a messenger to awaken them. God could just, He would be just in allowing them to go their own way and just completely handing them over to their sin and destruction. But He's sending a prophet. To awaken them, if they're in the gutter, God's grace runs deep even into that gutter. And so, what does this man of God do? <laughs> We're told in verse three, "But Jonah, ah, it can never go well when it starts with but." <laughs> but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. Away from the presence of the Lord. It's like the author of this book is trying to get our attention, right? With that word Tarshish. What's significant about that? I don't know how well you can see this map of the ancient world. But over here, of course, is Israel. And he's called to go west, northwest, towards Assyria. A journey, I'm told, is about 600 miles away. But go there. And that's where he wants them to to minister. But what he does is he goes the exact opposite way. He boards the ship... And he's heading toward Tarshish, which scholars believe was a port in ancient Spain. So it's basically, he's basically trying to go as far away in the known world to the edge of the earth to get away, because there's no way that he's going to go to Nineveh. i got to give you a little spoiler. If you don't know the story of Jonah, I apologize for this, but stick with us. It's all going to fall into place. He ends up actually in Nineveh, this man who's going the opposite direction, And he does speak some words begrudgingly. And let's just say a massive revival breaks out and this pagan nation turns from its evil and trusts in in Yahweh. Jonah does not like what he sees going on. In fact, if we just are to fast forward a little bit, we're told that when God saw what they did, the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. In other words, when, when God had grace upon them, shed his grace upon them, that made him mad. And then the next sentence says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Yahweh, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you, are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is my worst nightmare. I want your judgment to fall on these people, not your grace. I knew. I knew that this was a possibility. I knew that you might actually be true to who you are. And that is shedding your grace even on the worst of the worst. We have this song we sing here at Mercy Hill Church called Jesus, Lover of My Soul. And in there, there's this line, Plenteous grace with thee is found, grace to cover all my sin. And we like that, don't we? We like God's grace to cover our sin. But what about those people who don't like us? What about your boss who annoys you to no end? Or that person who hurt you as a child? Or maybe some terrorist organization that wants to 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 hurt us, is there is there grace to cover even their sin, or do we want them to pay for their sin? It's a good question to ask. This text also tells us in that same sentence where he's going to Tarshish, 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 that Jonah rose to flee from the presence of the Lord, away from the presence of the Lord. This is odd, isn't it? Why is this odd? Because as, as a good Hebrew. Jonah knows you cannot flee from the presence of the Lord. He knows there's no way you can go to get away from this God who is everywhere, present in his spirit. And yet, somehow in his thinking, he's like, I've got to get away. I've got to get away. If I can just get away, God will leave me alone. I wonder if the author of the book of Jonah kind of wrote these words tongue-in-cheek because he knows that Jonah knew As every good Hebrew knew, Psalm 139, which says this, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I flee from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that is, the graveyard, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even Tarshish, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall uphold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be as night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Jonah knew these words by heart. He was the Hebrew of Hebrews, and he was a prophet. He was a man of God. He was steeped in the scriptures. He sang this song at the temple when he worshiped the Lord Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And yet we're told several times that he's seeking to flee from the presence of God. This is what happens when we we turn away, when when we want to do our own thing, when we shut ourselves off to the voice of the Lord. Insanity creeps in. We start doing dumb things and stupid things. We start thinking we can actually run from the Lord. See, sin gives us what we want, relational distance with God. Jonah is relationally distant. He's mad, he's, he's frustrated, he doesn't want this, he's rebellion. So not only is there relational distance, but he's trying to put as much, it's crazy to say it this way, geographical distance, spatial distance between him and Yahweh. And in doing so, he pictures for us kind of the bent of our own hearts. And like Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's exactly what Jonah's doing here. So verse 4 is interesting. <laughs> But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So the ship threatened to break up. What's interesting in chapter 1 is this word hurled is used four times. We're just seeing two instances of it today in our passage, and next week we'll see two more. But here it says, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. That word hurled is the same word that's used of an athlete throwing a javelin. It's, It's like there's this ship there, and as one commentator put it, God has a heat-seeking missile on it. (laughs) He's got his eyes set on it, and he throws this tempest, this God who controls everything, so that the mariners, we're told in verse 5, were afraid, and each cried out to his God. Now think about this. These are mariners, not just people who every once in a while take a cruise. (laughs) These are guys who are used to storms on the Mediterranean Sea. These are are battle-hardened sailors. And even they are freaking out at what's going on here. They're crying out to their God. And it's interesting, this word God is that generic word in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, which is the word Elohim. And if you open Genesis chapter 1 and it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that word Elohim is used in the place of God in Hebrew. It simply refers to a supernatural spiritual being. So in Genesis 1, a supernatural spiritual being created this world. You have to keep reading the story to find out who that is and what he's up to. But here, this passage, these hardened sailors are freaking out and they're crying out to God. Now I don't know if these people are naturally religious, if they go to the temple every week or their place of shrines or whatever, but here they're dialed in. And it's oftentimes the case when we find ourselves with our world turned upside down, even, even some hardened atheist will turn out and cry to the Lord. Someone says in a moment like this, God, I'm, I'm not very spiritual and I know I don't pray much, but I sure could use some help right now. See, when when people pray like that, I want to tell them, you know, there's something deep, instinctually alive in you that knows you're meant to be connected, not disconnected from your creator. So here these people are crying out to their own gods. told in verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo. Here's the second instance of that word uh, hurled. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for the men. I uh, had to lighten it for them. So, so now they're losing profit, right? They're, they're throwing cargo overboard. Incidentally, they're in the reign of King Solomon. The scriptures were told that he received goods from the, the ships of Tarshish. That's part of the way he built the wealth of his kingdom. So these men are in the business of making money, but here they're freaking out, and they're trying to lighten the load, so they're, they're throwing the cargo over left and right. But we're told that Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Isn't this interesting? He's trying to flee from the presence of the Lord, and so he goes down into the hull of the ship. Maybe he's just trying to hide from everybody, and he lays down, and he falls fast asleep. I mean, he's in a deep sleep. This storm isn't even waking him. It's interesting, isn't it, what's going on with him in this moment. We're told in verse 6, that the captain came and said to him what do you mean you sleeper (laughs) in other words what in the world are you doing (laughs) taking a nap at a time like this get up and help us throw stuff overboard we're about to die you sleeper he also says to him arise call out to your elohim your god perhaps this elohim will give a thought to us that we may not perish maybe someone is listening call out, all hands on deck, all mouths praying at this moment, we are about to die. Perhaps this Elohim will give a thought to us that we may not perish. (laughs) And you have to be smiling right now in your heart with that phrase. If only there was a supernatural being who has given a thought to us that we might not perish. Let's pause there and just do a couple points of application. We'll pick up the story again next week. Three, specifically. Here's the first one. Let's let the book of Jonah ask us some hard questions. This this book's going to ask us hard questions all throughout this story. I guess the first one is, how much are we like Jonah? I listened to the message that Jimmy preached for us last week from the book of Matthew. The great commission that Jesus gave is... Messages called called On Mission with the commission, Great Commission of Jesus, something like that. So if you haven't listened to that, go, go make uh, haste and do that. But this is the post-resurrection. Jesus is giving his final instructions to his disciples, and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. As Jimmy pointed out, that command to go simply just means, as you go about life, as you're going and doing your thing, as you're going here and you're going there, Jesus says, I want you to be talking about me. I want you to be inviting people to turn faith and repentance towards me, that I may have compassion on them. I want you to to teach people everything that I've commanded you. And so as I was thinking on this this week, this thought came to me. And I said to the Lord, I don't like this thought. And I, I sensed him saying, you should ask this to... It wasn't an audible voice, but this is the conversation I have going on in my mind with God. And he says, I want, to, I want you to say this thought to Mercy Hill. And I was like, I can't do that. That's mean. But it, the more I try to push it away, the more it, it came. So um, it's one of those statements that maybe it's kind of like a two-by-four between the eyes. So it was like that for me. So my apologies ahead of time. But here it is. Like Jonah, many of us have no intention of obeying Jesus, who commands us to call people to repentance and faith in him. We may not get on a ship and and go a long ways away and hope that Jesus just forgets about us, but how many of us, knowing that he has commanded us to talk to people about him and his kingdom, have just with quiet, stiff-lipped resolve in our hearts have said, nope, not going to do that. It's in somebody else. I told you that was mean, wasn't it? (laughs) But we need to ask ourselves that question, right? That same God who is interested in shedding his grace upon the worst and the worst in Nineveh still wants us to be engaged in his mission of calling people back to himself. And so this statement... Like Jonah, many of us have no intention of obeying Jesus who commands us to call people to repentance and faith in him. Reveals much about our heart. And my friends, to whatever degree that is true of you, to whatever degree that's true of me, we need to have a conversation with God. We need to to not just say, no, I'm not going to do that, but we need to talk through with God why we don't want to do that. Ask him to change us, to make us instruments in his hands. So that's the first point of application. Let's let the book of Jonah ask us some hard questions. Here's the second point. Let's capture God's heart for the world. If it's true that God was interested in seeing even these crazy, wicked Ninevites turn from their ways and get back in line with the design of being human, to be connected to God and to love one another, how much more so is that the case still today? Today? especially when we have heard the words of Jesus in that Great Commission. See, God still wants to partner with you and with me and in inviting people to consider who Jesus is, the forgiveness of sins available to him in life in his kingdom. And he wants to use you. So in one sense, he's not asking about your ability or your inability, but simply about your availability. Are you available? I want to tell you uh, something that happened a few weeks ago. This might freak some of you guys out. I don't know. Um, part of what I do every week is I go to a local pool hall bar in our city. And I'm, I'm there to to make friends and, and to talk with people. And uh, I've been developing this, this friendship with uh, one person there over the last uh, several months and we've had some really good conversations and several times um, she has mentioned God and prayer and this one time she did so. I I asked her a question. I said, do you consider yourself a spiritual person? She took a big sigh and she said, that's an interesting question. I I think I'm going to heaven when I die. I, I want to go to heaven when I die, but I don't know. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she says, I've done some some really incredibly terrible things in my life. And if God has seen that, there's no way that he'll let me into heaven. And so I said, well, you know, God, he has grace for people like you and me. And she said, the things I've done are terrible. And she said, I'm going to tell you something I've done. I've not told anyone else this. And she told me, basically, of a time when she was molested as a kid. And in telling me the story, it became obviously that she felt like she was responsible for that. And her life has been filled with with drugs and with alcohol trying to numb the pain from her childhood. I told her, I said, you were not responsible for that. For what happened to you, that was all on that other person. You had nothing to do in terms of responsibility with that. I said, you know, the the ways we deal with our pain sometimes are not healthy and sometimes can make things worse, and sometimes might even be categorized as, as wrong and sinful. But sitting in there, she was listening to me, and I pulled up on my phone in the middle of this bar filled with smoke and booze and people cussing and loud music, and I opened up my app to Paul's words in First Timothy, and I said this, "'Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. "'Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, "'of whom I am the worst.'" The Apostle Paul, who, as you remember, was a religious terrorist who executed Christians, who was arresting them, throwing them in the prison. He had an encounter with Jesus. And on that road to Damascus, met the resurrected Christ, who had mercy and grace and compassion on him. And Paul never got over that. And in fact, Jesus commissioned him to go and proclaim his message. And he did all over the Roman Empire, ultimately giving his life for it. And here he says, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And as I shared this passage and several others from the scriptures with her on my little phone app in the middle of this bar, I just watched her face grow bright with joy and excitement as she believed and experienced the grace of God in her life in that moment. C. Peter Wagner, professor at Fuller Seminary, said this, All Christians at all times should be prepared for that moment when God brings them into contact with a person prepared by the Holy Spirit for trusting Christ. That's true of me, and that's true of you. It's not just true of me because I have a seminary education and I've studied the scriptures for, you know, since I was 16 years old, but it's also true of you. All of us, at all times, should be ready. We should be prepared for that moment that God brings us into contact with someone person, man, woman, old, young, rich, poor, whoever. Someone prepared by God to trust Christ. So are you prepared? I just want to plug the seminar that we have coming up. This is a great way to get prepared in September, just to go through the gospel, make sure we're mastered by it, make sure we have that message, message mastered so that we can proclaim it. Sometimes God's going to call some of us to go overseas and preach there. But we have opportunities, as Jimmy pointed out last week, to preach here in our own hometown. And In fact, the nations have all come here. It's a great opportunity to do that. So, so let's let the book of Jonah ask us some hard questions. Let's capture God's heart for the world. And here's the third and final point of application. Let's look to see Jesus in all of the scriptures, including the book of Jonah. We saw earlier how Jesus said that all the scriptures point to him, they speak of him. Charles Spurgeon, this Baptist minister in Victorian England said, From every town, village, and little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there's a road to London. And so, from every text in Scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the Scriptures that is Christ. Your business is when you get to a text to say, Now, what is the road to Christ? Run along the road towards the great metropolis, Christ. So, having looked at these first six verses of the book of Jonah, what is our road to Christ? Well, Jonah was a prophet, and so was Jesus. Jonah, when he received this commission from God, said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going to do that, and ran the other direction. But Jesus, receiving his commission from God, ran into the very direction that God told him to do. In fact, the scriptures tell us that when Christ came into the world, he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. And even to the point where He prayed, not my will, but your will be done. It's interesting, Jesus is speaking to his generation, like Jonah did centuries before. So told his generation, the men of Nineveh will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. As Jesus is preaching, and you remember the very first time that he preached, he opened the scrolls and read from the book of Isaiah, closed them and told them this day has arrived That Isaiah spoke about what are they tried trying to do with Jesus. <laughs> Remember, they tried to kill him. People were looking out for him during his whole ministry, in traps. He speaks to the hardness of their hearts and he says, look, Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. You guys aren't preaching at my message. I am greater than Jonah. And if they repented at the preaching of Jonah, They will rise and condemn you at that last day. And of course, Jesus, knowing that going to Jerusalem, they were going to torture him and kill him, still did it. He could have said, God, I don't want to go there. I know what's going to happen. But Jesus embraced it and said, no matter what, I've come to do your will. We're told, of course, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jonah and Jesus are kind of anti-types of one another, right? Jonah is the example of someone who was called to do something by God, even to suffer for him, and yet refused to do so. Jesus received the commission from God, embraced it for people like you and me, and went and even died, and it cost him his life. So you remember that question that the mariners asked Arise, call out your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. (laughs) He's done even more than that. For Jesus tells us, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, God rescues us not just simply from the storm of this life, but the storm that will come if we stand before him apart from Christ. If we do not believe in Christ, we just stand before him and all of the evil that we've done will rise up before God and condemn us on that last day. Well, my friends, if you believe in Jesus, and I would encourage you to do so, embrace Him. If you believe in Jesus, there's no condemnation. On that last day, what will rise before God is the righteousness of Christ that you were clothed in. And so Jesus answers that inquiry by those mariners. Is there a God who will give a thought to us? Yeah, there is. And He's done more than give a thought. He's given us Jesus that we might not perish, but have what?